Hey there, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Matt Mitchell, Blister's running editor. This week on the show, I talked to Corinne Malcolm. Corinne wears a bunch of different hats in the ultra running world and somehow manages to balance being a member of the media and a coach with running professionally for Adidas Terex. Now, if you're a fan of the sport, chances are you've either read something she's written or heard some of her race coverage at events like UTMB, Western States, or Broken Arrow. But I think there's also a good chance you might not know too much about her as a person. And that's really where I wanted to focus my conversation with her. Corinne is usually the one asking all the questions, so I decided to turn the tables a bit and interview her about herself. I sat down with her about a week after her 8th place finish at Madeira Island Ultra Trail, which is a gnarly race in Portugal, and we talked about a whole slew of things, including her background in biathlon, what makes her so good at suffering, the ups and downs of coming back from an injury, and whether live broadcasting an ultra is actually harder than running one, and I think her answer might surprise you. This was a great conversation. Kryn is super knowledgeable about the sport, and it was fun to learn a little bit more about her as a person. So with that, here's my conversation with Kryn Malcolm. Kryn, thanks for coming on the podcast. I am so happy to be here. Yeah, so I don't really know how to introduce you because between all of the podcasting you do, I know you do a ton of science writing. You just co-authored a book. You're a coach for CTS, and more recently, you got into some media exploits as a broadcaster for covering live races, and you've become kind of like a polyglot, I think, in the sport, and buried under all of that is the fact that you're also one of our sport's more accomplished athletes, and before I do like interviews, I go through guests' like backgrounds and podcast appearances that they've um, and read about them. And what I kind of noticed about you is that seldom are you brought on to talk about yourself. I think you're an expert in so many different things that people like to have you on to address certain subjects. And that's where I kind of want to start the conversation today with you is have you talk about yourself and and your running background in your career as an athlete. And I know that's like might be like a stock question is like, how did you get an ultra running? But the sport is so unique in the sense that like, I have a theory that it kind of like finds people instead of like, you know, people grow up playing basketball and baseball and these, these major ball sports, because like, that's what you do when you're a kid. But ultra running has a way of kind of like finding people and like pulling the best out of them. So that's my first question for you is how did you first get into ultra running? Yeah, so this is obviously an audio format. So no one can see me sitting here like nodding along like yeah okay this is this is a great question because i do totally agree with that that ultra running kind of finds finds people maybe more so than you find ultra running um i come from a nordic skiing background cross-country skiing which is not uncommon in our sport it's definitely less common than the the like college track and field and cross country or like the post-collegiate road marathon scene or even triathlon, like those are definitely funnels into our sport. But um, cross-country skiing, there's definitely many of us who have slowly found our way into trail and ultra running. And so grew up super athletic, went to college to ski, dropped out of college to ski, went back to college to finish up skiing and during, or not finish up skiing, finish up studying skiing, I guess. But during that time kind of was coming back to just spending time in the mountains and spending time outside. And through that process, recognized that trail running or particularly racing as a trail runner was not dissimilar from what we did any given weekend as a cross country skier. I was like, Oh, you're going to go run in the mountains for four hours and like have snacks. That's like a pretty typical Saturday for a cross country skier. So, um, felt, 
you know, kind of immediately at home in the trail running space and doing a bunch of sky running races. And then, you know, kind of did that natural leap in which I think I saw myself excelling as the distances got longer or the courses got harder or the conditions got worse and kind of gravitated towards the extreme of our sport for sure. Because I think I have a predilection for suffering, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. And so um, ultra running definitely fits that mold of, you know, I guess, celebrating those of us who can suffer maybe more than other people. Yeah. And I think I want to pause on something you said um, about kind of how folks with a Nordic skiing background uh, do so well in our sport, because I think there's a sentiment that uh, sometimes when folks with really fast road PRs migrate over to the trail space, you know, the expectation is that they're going to dominate through like sheer leg speed. But that's seldom the case I find. And it's actually people like yourself that have this huge aerobic base from skiing that do well. I mean, if you look at like Courtney DeWalter, you, Olivia Amber, Steph Howe, Erica Flowers, David Sinclair, they're all at the top of the sport. Um, why do you think that is? So I think part of it's that aerobic base that you mentioned, right? We've, we've spent years and years and years putting in hours of training. But I think the other part of that's mindset a little bit in that when road and track and field and cross country athletes come into the sport, they're really set on time, right? Like they're really set on, you know, what pace are they running for a given mile? Um, I think it's a much more natural transition from skiing in which it's like, oh, this is aerobic or, oh, this is anaerobic. Um, as opposed to being upset that, you know, you ran a 14 minute mile. Um, I ran many 18 minute miles on my run today and that was not an unusual run for me. Um, we also do a lot of hiking and skiing. Um, and that I think is a, a benefit, particularly as races get either vertier or longer. And then I think skiing, the races that we do are a lot like probably a 10 K cross country race. Like it is at the maximum capacity for both being kind of ana like being anaerobic for a very long time while having to deal with like undulating terrain. And so I think it teaches athletes to suffer or to like be okay with that very early on. Like you just, you get very comfortable knowing that like it's going to be uncomfortable. Like you, you go into a Nordic skiing race knowing that at some point it's going to hurt really badly, but that everyone else hurts. And I think that being conditioned to kind of accept that as like a 14 or 15 year old. And then, you know, coming into the sport in our twenties, I think that that is a skill that we have acquired from years of practice. And it's not to say that an 800 on a track doesn't hurt or a road marathon doesn't hurt because that sounds terrifying to me. But I think that skiing rewards a lot of that from a, like in, in the same way that ultra running rewards it. And then I think, yeah, it's the, the hours and hours of training, multi-sport training in particular that we've put in from a really early age, because we're not just skiing, we're, we're running and we're cycling and we're doing all these other things that keep us pretty darn healthy, but allow us to train, you know, 500, 600, a thousand hours a year as a teenager. Gotcha. So in your skiing career, what kind of events did you focus on? Because I know you didn't just Nordic ski, right? Yeah. So I, um, so for everyone in the Nordic skiing world, we, most of us compete in two disciplines, both, both skating. So kind of like hockey, like hockey skating is how we describe it or classic, which is more akin to running. So everyone has to compete in both of those. And our distances are pretty 
um, are pretty set. There's kind of a sprint category in which the races take about three minutes. Um, they vary in length a little bit, but they're all under a kilometer and a half. And then, you know, at max, you're racing 5Ks or 10 or 10Ks, generally speaking. In college, it gets a little bit longer, you know, 15K, 20K distances. But um, and then there's ski marathons. But once again, a ski marathon might only take two hours. So it's a little bit different than than the road scene. But I um, myself didn't actually um, compete at the very highest level in cross-country skiing. I cross-country skied collegiately and then I actually left school to do the sport of biathlon. So shooting and skiing, um, which since the Winter Olympics were this winter, people are actually probably familiar with that sport right now. Um, it's very, very cool. You ski um, on the cross-country track with a 22. Um, so I did that for a whole Olympic cycle, basically from 2010 to 2014 as a member of the U.S. Uh, junior national team and then as a member of the U.S. national team um, before ultimately returning to school while my teammates at that point in time were on their way to Sochi. Gotcha. Do you think that that component of like shooting and like having to kind of like calm yourself down and like focus because I imagine shooting to be I don't hunt or anything like that but like I imagine it to be more of like an intellectual like skill in a certain sense like requiring a lot of focus do you think that has translated to your success in ultra running at all yeah it's so you you like like it's a it's a skill in which you kind of default to skill like you practice and practice and practice so that during the race you don't have to think about it you're you kind of default on this mechanism that you you've done over and over and over again. But I think where that plays into ultra running is just knowing that you can only control the controllables, right? Like you get on the shooting range and it's windy, like tough luck. Like that's, you you drew the short straw if it's windy when you come into the range and it might be calm when you leave. Um, So I think it teaches you really quickly that you can only, yeah, you can only control the controllables that you don't you, you, it's a waste of time to like to worry about the things that are outside of your control. And so I think that makes pinning like a race bib on in an ultra, like I handle adversity so much better when I'm racing than I do in my day-to-day life. Like I, I wish I could pin a bib, like a race bib on for my day-to-day life because I do, I, I handle adversity so much better when I click into that mindset. And I do think that that mindset comes from trying to race at a really high level in that sport where you have to just focus on what you can control and you have to move on. Yeah, I've had the privilege of uh, watching your race a few times. And uh, what always strikes me is how efficient you are moving through aid stations. And I have to imagine that, that like some of that goes back to, to that learned trait. Something else you said a little earlier, um, you mentioned the double-edged sword of like being able to suffer well. And I noted that and I want you to, to speak more on that. Yeah, I think this is a topic of conversation right now within our sport too. Like I think we reward suffering. It's the David Goggin mindset, right? It's, you know, there's like death before DNF, all these things, right? Like and I and I don't I don't condone much of that. Um, I'm not a death before DNF person, but I do think that, you know, suffering is still a skill set. What that how that can be a double-edged sword though is that wall being able to suffer or being able to like not find the things that should be sufferable, so like suffering, um, is that you can get yourself into a bad place, right? You can be, you know, you don't drop out because you're not willing to, and you you are in like a, a critical health state, right? Like I've seen that, we've seen that with athletes, we've seen that with high profile athletes. I think Addie Bracey has done a great job talking to that, having ended up in the hospital with rhabdo because she didn't want to drop out of a race where she knew something was going wrong. Um, and that is suffering for the sake of suffering as opposed to 
you know, suffering when it gets hard for a little bit during a race. Um, so it makes you, it makes you tough. These long ultras are oftentimes a battle of attrition, right? It's everyone is hurting out there, but if you can tolerate it a little bit more, that can mean finishing in the top 10 at a major international race type of thing. But that also is how we run into injuries or we run into overtraining, um, or we run into anything where our body has said enough is enough. And we didn't listen to any of those signals that it was telling us. And so I think that that is where suffering kind of takes that turn in which it doesn't serve us anymore. In fact, it, it's gotten us into a, a situation that we shouldn't be in. And having missed all of last year for an injury, I would say, you know, part of that was bad luck, but part of that was probably like, there are probably warning signs that I missed or I didn't heed. And I, I leaned into some suffering maybe more than I should have. And so, um, I definitely think that while, while it is a, a strength, it is also a weakness. And I think that there are a lot of strengths that any of us might have that could also be a weakness. So suffering is definitely right in that mix. You mentioned overtraining, which is a term I think that uh, it's kind of nebulous, but it gets thrown around a lot. And, you know, I've I've had several people say like, oh, yeah, I've been overtraining or like I have overtraining syndrome without, I think, a really like concrete understanding of, of what that entails. Um, I know you've written about it before. Uh, what are your what is your understanding of overtraining briefly? Yeah. So then the biggest thing for people to know about overtraining and, and I've, I've spoken about this before and, I, and you're right, I have written about it. Um, if you you Google me, it's probably what comes up. Um, it's definitely what I get the most emails about still. Like if I get a cold email from someone, it's probably because they're worried that they have overtraining syndrome and they don't know what to do next. And, that, and that's a very real feeling. Um, but what people should know is that overtraining is not like an active verb. You can't actively overtrain. That's a non-functional overreach. That's the things that you were doing that will lead you to like the noun, the place that is overtraining syndrome. It's the final destination. Um, so I think many of us have experienced overreaching, maybe even non-functional overreaching. It's it's after a big week of training where you don't rest enough on the backside of it. It's after, you know, a big race where maybe you come back too fast. That's all overreaching. And to some degree, overreaching is really good. You need it for adaptations. But, you know, adequate stress plus adequate rest is what equals adaptation. And when that that rest to activity stuff gets out of whack. That's where we kind of find us in that overreaching territory. But another big thing too, is that I think the people that are most prone to maybe ending up in a state of overtraining syndrome is not the pros. It's actually the busy moms and dads, the people who have demanding jobs, the people who have, you know, they've got demanding jobs and they're trying to run a hundred and they've got two kids. Um, because stress is stress is stress. And it's not just training stress. Like I firmly believe it's actually very hard to physically overtrain, but it's very easy to under recover. And so I think though, like those are the people who I think are most likely to actually end up in that camp. It's not, it's not your classic pro runner who puts in 120 miles a week or whatever. It's the, it's the people who are trying to get in their six to eight hours of training a week while juggling an 80 hour a week job while taking care of an ill parent and, you know, dealing with teenagers in the house. Like uh, those are the people who I worry about actually getting overtraining syndrome. And then more recently, we've actually learned too, that a lot of people who probably, who might be in this state of overtraining syndrome probably don't have OTS. They actually probably have like a low energy availability. So one thing to rule out 
if you're sitting there going, maybe that's me, is like is to rule out that nutritional component. And it's not even an intentional under eating or anything. It's just like you're going for four hour runs. It's really hard to refuel after that. Like you could end up in a state of low energy availability. So there's lots of new research coming out on it. Um, but my big thing is that it's not an active thing. It's it's the final destination and um, it's really hard to overtrain, but it's very easy to under recover. And so maybe it's actually a an under recovery injury, a metabolic injury in that state than, than you know, putting in too many miles. You've been pretty open about your own experience, like overtraining. Um, I'm curious, like, how did you ended up doing that? Yeah, so that was that kind of that Olympic window. That's why that's why I ended up going back to school and not going to Sochi. Um, was I was you know kind of fast tracked onto the U.S. national team. You know, there there are now there's all these red flags. You know, I was super young on the senior national team, much younger than my teammates. Um, the coaches who I who I still like, who I have a good relationship with, now I think just I was kind of lost in the mix of all of that. And so when I was, you know, I was basically told to keep up with my teammates who were four to ten years my senior, um, and that was just kind of the expectation. So I think I was probably chronically overreaching, um, but I was also in this really stressful environment where I dropped out of school to pursue this big goal that was, you know, very much kind of like living in a fishbowl where we, I felt like we were kind of judged every single day, like, are we improving? Um, which is very stressful when the finish line keeps moving. My boyfriend and I broke up, like just, I feel, you know, all those little stressors in life where you're kind of still trapped in that environment were like piling on. And so, yes, the training was probably too much, but it was all these like outside stressors too. And I probably, I've never struggled as far as I can think um, with like a energy deficiency. I really am a food person. I really like snacking. I really like meals and food. So I don't, I can, and I've never had amenorrhea. I've never lost my, my menstrual cycle. And so I can kind of rule out the red S component of that and still have all of the symptoms of someone who's been struggling with OTS. But I don't think it necessarily was the training on its own. That's definitely a component in that stressful environment that I was in, in which training was my everyday job. But I think it was all the other, like the site, there was a ton of psychological pressure, a ton of like psychological stress, and not a lot of social support in that environment. And so I think that, you know, it was those things combined that really led to kind of just a total body deterioration and everything kind of falling apart, which, you know, once again, like I was really good at suffering until all of a sudden I like couldn't get up and, and like tie my shoes. Like runs were not happening. Skiing was not happening. You know, sleeping wasn't happening because depression doesn't really allow you to sleep and vice versa. So yeah, it was a really, really rough time, but I don't think that I can say, oh, it's because I was training too much. I think it's the training plus everything else that was going on at that point in time. Yeah. Um, that's, I think, something a lot of people worry about. Uh, and it's it's reassuring to know that it's a really, really, really hard thing to actually overtrain in that. Most people get hurt before they do it, right? Like most people, particularly in the running world in which you're not, you know, cycling and skiing and doing all these other things that are low impact, like most runners will get hurt before they get, before they end up having OTS just because like the train, like, I think it'd be really hard at the, at least at the professional level to to get that far along without the psychological component coming into play. So I want to fast forward a little bit and focus on your running and racing career a bit. I have looked at, you know, your results over the past, you know, 
five to eight years. And I've noticed that you are drawn to these really gnarly races. Like you seem to really carve out a niche in the hundred mile distance. And, you know, this obviously goes back to your, your readiness to suffer. But why else do you think that uh, you do so well at races that are like on the longer end of what's on offer? Yeah, I think like people have asked that question, like, what's your favorite race distance? And I don't even know if it's a distance. I think it's like, I love to race for like 18 to 20 hours. Like that's a real sweet spot. Um, And and so it's, you know, having gone to like TDS and most recently going to Madeira, like these races that aren't necessarily even 100 miles, but man, you're out there for a long time just because there's so much vert. And I think that's where I get drawn in. Yes, I've run Western States and Leadville, which are both not like neither one is notoriously hilly, um, or at least not you wouldn't think of them as like extreme mountain races. But I do like love to lean into the races that have that vert component of them that require hiking because for me, you know, poles are like an extension of my body coming from years of ski racing before that. And so that's my, my happy place is being able to like, reel in people on a hike and I just have to be fast enough to or have enough turnover for a downhill or a flat. But I think it, yeah, it goes to the like being willing to be out there for a long time. And also, um, not even that willingness to suffer, but that willingness to just like troubleshoot and be out there, like trying to figure out how to snack for that long and how to keep your body moving for that long and deal with the conditions too. Like I love a competitive field. Like I don't shy away from competitive fields. And I think that's what to me, if I look at what I've raced, I don't, I haven't done a lot of local racing. I haven't done a lot of small racing. Like I want to, I want to test myself on the biggest stage. And so that's why, you know, it's been important for me to show up to races like Western States and UTMB and Madeira and Trans, or Tran, um, and Chuckanut. Like I want to be on the start line where everyone else is because, to me, that's what makes it fun. It might mean that I'm sixth or seventh place a lot, but I do think there's something really rewarding of trying to get the like the best out of yourself while being in a really competitive field. That ties in nicely to something I wanted to talk to you about, which is what you did when there were no races in 2020 at the height of the pandemic when you know we weren't really allowed to travel internationally and most of the races were postponed. Uh, I think your affinity for distance is... Uh, yeah, definitely, definitely came out in a really cool way. Uh, I know your biggest project in 2020 was going after the fastest known time on the Tahoe Rim Trail, which is 170 miles long. And uh, you ran it continuously in 44 hours and 51 minutes. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about uh, the lead up to that project and, and how it went? Yeah, the Tahoe Rim Trail was like a dream come true. And it was one of those projects that have been on the kind of the bucket list since moving to California. Like I remember, I'm a big Chris Mole fan. Um, I've, you know, since since not even like be pre being an ultra or trail runner, like I knew that when she was young, like first coming onto the scene, she had like set, you know, the youngest person to ever compete the Grand Slam. Like I was like, this is my girl. Like she is good at suffering. Like I like I see her, um, and so I knew that she had ha- I knew that she had the FKT on it. So it was more on my on my. Uh, I guess, kind of like tick list of things that I would love to accomplish in my career. And then in 2019, I actually had the the privilege of getting to um, crew and pace Magda Belay, um, the president of Goo and Hoka runner, Olympic marathoner. We can 
praise her for forever and ever. Um, I got to be part of her team and kind of witness it firsthand, which was great. <laughs> like it was kind of like a little like info gathering mission too of like what can go wrong, you know, what went really well, what would we change? Um, if, if like what, what, like what would they change even if they went back out for another attempt type of thing. And so um, I feel very fortunate that a year before my own attempt, I got to go and experience that. Um, but yeah, when the, the pandemic happened, the Tahoe Rim Trail was always something that I was like, oh, we'll do that at like the end of the season, which is like very cocky in hindsight to say like, oh, you know, if I feel good post UTMB and like winter doesn't come early, like, yeah, maybe I'll go run around this 171 mile route around Lake Tahoe. Like that's insane. That's an insane thing to think. Um, but that's what I thought. And then the pandemic happened and I was like, oh, perfect. There are no races. I guess I can do this project now. Let's like find a time to do it. Um, which went like a lot of scheming of dates and knowing, you know, trying to get some good sunlight as the days get shorter, trying not to go too far into the, um, the fall in which we are going to get shorter days and colder nights and colder days and windstorms and snow potentially. So we like kind of initially settled at the end of August. Um, that summer I got to do a cool Eversting project on Mount Tam, our local hill climb, um, that I'd been planning to do in hopes of racing. I think at that point TDS, maybe it was UTMB that year that I was planning to go back to. Either way, I was like, oh, cool, I'll do this like little Eversting project to prepare my legs to go back to Europe and suffer um, for something very similar. So, you know, did that with a friend in July, and then we kind of set our sights on an end of August date for Tahoe Rim Trail, like get some time on parts of the course that I had not seen because we do live, live very close to Tahoe while still respecting like we weren't really supposed to be up there quite yet. So as things opened up that summer, made made plans to get up there to run a little bit um, and keep the community as safe as possible. And then the fires happened. Oh, yeah. As they always do. I remember fire those season. fires. Fire season. Um, I think the day before what was supposed to be the first attempt, or maybe, we, no, we postponed for a week already. So we had postponed for a week. And then the day before... We were supposed to go up to Tahoe for the the second, the second attempt. We had like the like terrible orange day in San Francisco, in which like the birds didn't know what to do. Like the sun didn't come up because it was all shrouded in smoke, kind of high up in the atmosphere, blotting out the sun. It was very apocalyptic. Um, and kind of in that same breath, the forests were closed. Like all of the forests were closed in Tahoe. And we were like, okay, cool. So we can't legally be on the trails. And for me, if I was going to do this thing right, I wanted to do it legally. And while I don't have asthma or any sort of lung sensitivity, like I didn't want to be out there running in terrible smoky conditions, nor did I want my pacers or crew to be out there in those conditions either. Um, so we postponed again. At this point, I don't think I thought it was going to happen at all. Like we're well into September. I actually, we had postponed our wedding due to the pandemic, but Steven and I still managed to go out to Bozeman to see some friends. Um, I'm like, at this point, I'm convinced that this is over. This like, it's not happening. I talked to my really good friend, Devin, who's kind of supposed to be part of my crew this whole time. Um, and we decided that maybe we'll go for an unsupported attempt. So we like talked to our friend, we talked Tony, our friend Tony into like coming up to do some like media stuff for us. Um, you know, we buy 30 
thousand calories or something insane that we're going to try to carry unsupported together, you know, and we wake up the next morning and it's smoky and we're not getting the window of green air. Like it's going to get green later in the day, but it's going to get smoky again. And like Devin is definitely, you know, has some asthma stuff. It's a little bit more sensitive to it. And so we risked, you know, being 140 miles in and having the smoke come in and be and that being really hard on either one of us. So we bail. We, you know, we come back to San Francisco yet again with our tails between our legs. Attempt number three, just like foiled. And I think a couple days later, maybe friends are up in Tahoe and they're like, hey, like the smoke, like the air, like the wind is changing. Like we think we're going to get like, you know, I think the stuff that's been here is going to get blown out and that we're going to get a clear, like a long, clear window. Um, I think at this point, like I'm in Fresno visiting Steven and like we fast packed the Ray Lakes loop. Like we went for a 40 mile run. Cause I'm like, this is not happening. My season's done. Um, and then I get home to this text message from a friend being like, I think you could do it like next week. And so I like text everyone and I'm like, Hey, what if, you know, I get an Airbnb and as soon as I book an Airbnb, I know the smoke's going to come back. It's like, I'm going to spend the money. I'll book an Airbnb. I'm like, who's in? Like, cause people have like gotten off work many times. You yourself has, have gotten, had gotten off work many times trying to make this attempt happen. And so we, we get a small but mighty crew together in which people are going to be coming and going from Tahoe in and around their work schedules to make it work. Um, cause we decide to go with a Sunday, Monday for our best opportunity. And we like, we do like it happens. Like we get out there and we get the green light and we go for it. And not only do we go for it, but like I roll into this having texted my coach, like, I don't even care about the FKT. I don't care about the time. I just need to run around the lake and call it a year. Like I just need this. I need this to be done with. And this is like, we're talking, we had initially tried to do this at the end of August and it's now the middle of October. So I'm ready to be done with the Tahoe Rim Trail at this point. But we we do it. We like we start early in the morning. We start at like 5 a.m. and we roll and we roll like pretty smoothly for 44 hours and 51 minutes with little with little like hang up with little hazard. There were, I think, all sorts of crazy things kind of going on with my crew and cars running out of gas and missing pacers worried that they've lost me. But my own personal run was great and very, very smooth. But I do think that my crew had their work cut out for them trying to to keep their own stuff together for 45 hours. But we somehow pulled it off in October. And I was the, I think, technically the second woman under 48 hours. I think Chrissy's time was just under 48 hours. And it made it like the fourth fastest time overall or fifth fastest time overall, something like that. So very, very cool. And that was the same year that um, Candace Burt lowered the unsupported women's time. The men's unsupported time went down. And like, so like, he almost broke Killian's supported record at one point. And then Adam Kimball also set the men's supported record. So it was a big year on the Tahoe Rim Trail in which we saw times across the board get lowered, which is cool. Like it really summed up the pandemic in which people got after it, even when racing went away. And it was super satisfying to like get to share that with a gaggle of friends who donated their time to listen to me hallucinate for many, many hours. What did you hallucinate? They weren't that fun. At one point, they weren't that Olivia fun. Olivia and Eric, 
Olivia and Eric, my, my housemates are really good friends. They probably got the best bit of it because they were with me for like 34 miles through the desolation. And at this point, I'm like really hallucinating. Like everything I look at is not what it's supposed to be. And so my eyes are just playing tricks on me. Like every rock I looked at was something else. Like it was a tree or it was like it was a car or it was a tent or it was a archery set or it was, you know, something really random. And at one point we had like just filtered some water and I'm just staring. I'm staring at what is a rock, but I don't know it's a rock. I'm staring at it. And Olivia's like, Corinne, we got to go. And I'm like, but there's a bird. And she's like, Corinne, there's no bird there. Like you got to like, because I'm trying to like step across the water without stepping in the water. And in my mind, this one rock in the middle of it is not, is not a rock. It is a bird. Um, and then, you know, if I kind of closed my eyes and opened them and looked, looked at the said bird again, I could see the rock. But it was like that for, I was so happy it got dark again because then I couldn't see anything and I didn't like have, I wasn't having like auditory or like moving hallucinations, but it was the, my eyes trying to figure out what was around me. Um, and so once we got dark, once it got dark again, I just had a headlamp to like beam to follow that honestly made it way, way easier. But it was, I got to narrate that to uh, Olivia and Eric for, I don't even know how many hours. I'm sure they had a great time. The sport's so weird. <laughs> we choose to do this to ourselves too, right? Yeah. Makes no sense to me, but here we are. Man, what a way to end 2020. Um, let's move into 2021 a little bit. Because I know that was kind of an anomaly for you. Uh, you dealt with an injury that took you out um, for most of the year. And what I noticed about how you navigated that process was that um, I feel like m- a lot of injured athletes have a tendency to kind of like hibernate when they're injured and kind of, you know, go dark and detach themselves from the sport. And you took the complete opposite approach and <laughs> dove headfirst into uh, race coverage. Um, was that, what was that like? Yeah, I think I went to more races in 2021 than I ever have. And I didn't, wasn't on the start line as a single one of them, which is weird. That's like a very odd experience. And, you know, I, I normally like volunteer at a race type of thing every season, but this was like, I was all over the place and, uh, and not actually racing. I have talked about this with some other folks saying that, you know, the Corinne of a decade ago would have not handled this injury well. Like I would not have, I would have been hibernating. I would not have been a fun person to be around. Um, I would not want to talk about the sport type of thing. And instead, I think having, having kind of lost a sport once before when I like had to kind of retire from biathlon prematurely, I kind of recognized that I didn't have to, I didn't have to fight it like I had in the past. I didn't have to kind of hibernate when that happened before, you know, I enrolled in 23 credits instead of dealing with my issues. So to kind of tackle those head on this time around and not be frustrated with what I like, quote unquote, had lost during that time, it was really wonderful to get to be part of our community, to get to be at team events with Adidas Terex, who I run with, to get to be at Western States doing live commentary, at UTMB doing live commentary, at Broken Arrow doing that. Like, it was really cool to get to be a really active participant in a sport that I loved, even if I couldn't participate how I had in the past. But I don't like, I think that's just an evolution in my relationship with who I am as a person and who I am as an athlete and that identity. I think my identity even three years ago or four years ago would have been much more hung up on this. And the 2021 version of myself just wasn't. 
Um, I feel very lucky for that. And I wish I could distill exactly how that came to be. Maybe it's maturity. I'm just getting old. But I do think that it really fed it fed me this year. It gave me so much energy to to not I didn't have to miss the sport because I still got to be part of it, I think is what it boiled down to. Was Western States your first uh, time live broadcasting? No, I have accidentally live broadcasted before. And I say accidentally, it was I was brought in to do an interview after TDS in 2018 with UTMB TV um, because one of the guys who does live commentary is from Orcas Island, Washington. And I was living in Bellingham and he's like, who's this Bellingham girl? We should bring her in for an interview. Um, and then I just kind of stayed. I just like called, I called the rest of the OCC race. It was great. And they let me come back in the next day. And so in 2019, when I was at UTMB, I had reached out to them and I said, Hey, like, can I come back in for OCC again this year? Like that was really fun. And so they let me come back in for OCC, which was, you know, very, very cool. But it was, yeah, totally by accident, like a volunteer kind of inviting myself, um, into the comment, like into the commentating booth. But it's kind of become an accidental side hustle at this point, which I'm not, I'm not mad about. It's been really fun. No, I think it, it speaks to the health of the sport, right? Um, I think the fact that it has so much media coverage is, is generally thought of as a good thing for it. Um, I have a question about like the like logistical aspect of that. Like at Western States, I, there was a great YouTube feed of the, of your broadcast with Dylan Bowman. And I think you, how long were you continuously talking? We were on air for 20 hours and we'll be on air. I just had my first Western States broadcast team meeting yesterday and we'll be on air for 21 hours. Right. This, this year. Yeah. So we, I think our longest break was three minutes or something. How do you prepare for that? Do you? So I think everyone would handle it a little bit differently. I think because I'm a fan of the sport, I kind of know what's going on with, with who these athletes are coming in. Um, you know, who, what stories are we going to tell on the day? Um, the data, my brain does not remember the periodic table or other chemical equations, but it does remember like really random race results, um, particularly well. So, um, that I think is very helpful. I think there was definitely some other like kind of like being like, oh, okay, we, we should make sure we know what the course record times are, that kind of thing. But then a lot of it happens on the fly. Like I had, I had the YouTube chat open, like I could see our own YouTube feed, but I had it paused and I had the chat open so that I could communicate with people watching. Um, I think I had a file of bib numbers that were, you know, so I had everyone's like age where they're from and their their bib number so we could identify people. We had ultra sign up up. I had there's all these old Excel spreadsheets from like historical data from Western states. I think I had those at my computer overheated at one point and like totally crashed. But being able to multitask and just find information really, really quickly, I think is like what is so important for doing live commentary and having a team that you can play off of. Like if Dylan was talking, I could look something up and then bring that information up for us. And so I think being able to simultaneously talk use a YouTube chat function and like scan Excel docs to look at like, you know, Ellie Greenwood splits from whatever year um, became a valid, like a skill set that I didn't know I had, but having been like a medical scribe in an ER, 
having worked in the food service industry, I think I kind of took all of those other skills and rolled them into who knew live commentary. This is very much your role now. And it's something that you're going to continue to do this year as well as race, which I think balancing those two is going to be really fun to see. Um, but let's talk about this year because you just ran Madeira Island Ultra Trail. What, what was that? A week or two ago? Exactly a week ago. I was I was running at this time, I think, still last week. And this is that was essentially your first real first major international race back from injury. Um, what did that build up look like? Because I know uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a customary training block and taper. Yeah, it wasn't a normal training block. And it is. It's my first international start line since UTMB in 2019 because of the pandemic. So it, it's been a hot second since I've been on a big, scary mountain race start line. And that was, that was, I don't know, that was the goal. The goal was to get there and we got there. So it was not a normal build for me because in my return from injury was super nonlinear. Um, I mean, I got hurt in like technically February of 2021, didn't really know until March of 2021 got, you know, rescanned in April 2021, in which they were like, hey, things aren't good, you need to be more careful, you know, kind of ran, walked my way through the summer. But like in August, I was running for three or four miles at a time. So not a whole lot. Like I was at UTMB doing live commentary going for three to four mile runs when I could. Um, so it was a very slow build of like, let's just get to 20 miles total for the week. Let's just get to 40 miles total for the week. And this is, I'm not a particularly high mileage runner, but this is very like, that, that was low running volume for me. Um, and I couldn't do workouts because workouts seemed to flare some adductor stuff that was associated with the pelvic stress reactions and stress fractures that I had. And so I had to be really, really cognizant of like, okay, can I do vert? Okay. I can do vert, but I can't do intensity. I'm like trying to figure that out, getting on the bike a lot. And so finally, by the time we got to like I don't know, this like this Christmas, I would say, like December 2021, January 2022, I was starting to put down like, you know, back to back 40 mile weeks type of thing. Like we had enough consistency in which I didn't have to bike, you know, type of thing. There were months and months and months where if I ran more than two days in a row, I had to get on the bike. Like I could not run a third day in a row type of thing because I was in pain. Um, so it was a very slow, very arduous let's like rebuild to a semblance of normal volume. Um, but then kind of like green light started to go off and I felt like I could do, I could handle vert more than anything, still no intensity um, and managed to string together a couple of weeks kind of, I guess in March really um, I ran a 50 K um, and like, I, like I'll use race in air quotes. Like it was very much a, like I need to accomplish running 50 K distance type of thing like check my body will do that cool now let's do some vert and got like three weeks of vert in and then left on my honeymoon because who doesn't want like a month-long taper before your first international race um with a 10-day ski touring trip in the middle of that so i got a couple weeks of really good vert training in um here i did many many mount tam repeats um and then, yeah, packed my bag for a month. And Stephen and I took off on our belated honeymoon for two weeks in which I ran four miles 
I think in two weeks um, and ended up like getting to the island, getting to Madeira like a week before race day. So you can't exactly panic train at that point. So I think I went for one 12 mile run and then like some shakeouts from the hotel and called it good and hoped for the best. But we joked with Tahoe Rim Trail that I really excel with an extended taper because I basically tapered from September until we did the uh, did the actual attempt in mid-October. And so we kind of repeated that here on accident in which I kind of had a long taper because while, while we were ski touring and we were on our feet a lot for 10 days, um, you know, it was not, it was not how I would have traditionally used the final, you know, two, three weeks before a race. Um, so there's lots of lessons learned. It turns out, uh, running downhill is different than skiing. Um, found that out pretty quickly (laughs) during, uh, during mute a week ago in which I could go uphill pretty darn well because ski touring is just heavy hiking, but running downhill was a whole nother beast. And I'm just so grateful that my body tolerated, you know, 18 and a half hours of running because that was, that was the big test is that I just, I thought I could, I wanted to be smart. I wanted to be careful. And I wanted to know that my body would absorb that and tackle that well and only be the normal type of sore after a race like that and not, you know, have like, you know, be unable to walk, for example. So feel feel very fortunate that we pulled it off. But it was non-traditional, and I don't know that I would recommend it, but it worked okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you to put your coaching hat back on and uh, ask you if there's anything that you gleaned from that experience that you would kind of share to your to the athletes you coach. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know we look at we look at cross training sometimes and don't consider it training, but the truth is that cross training is training. Um, it's all training. And so that I do think we can lean into these other modalities um, to get fit, to get fitter, to, you know, to do really good work. But it's not what I lacked in my build was like the final bit of specificity. You know, I, I did some good vert stuff, which gave me some uphill and some downhill. Um, I will say running down some at AV. Um, we ran down a lot of a lot of pavement in Madeira as well. So I felt pretty good about that. But um specificity is definitely really important. And I think that you don't need a lot of it, but you need a little bit of it. And I think that that's kind of what I sacrificed by making that. And it's not, I'm going to say I sacrificed it. It was my honeymoon. It was great. But like I made that decision consciously. And so I think, you know, I think you can do a trip like that, but I would maybe advise doing it not in the three week block before, you know, your A race. But it definitely like I climbed really well. And I thought I think the cycling I've been doing and I think the skiing I've been doing really helped with that. Like I don't feel rusty at all. We had 24,000 feet of climbing. Did not feel rusty at all. Felt like and if you look at my like normalized graded pace stuff from the first climb to the last climb, like my climbing didn't slow down either, which is great. Like I've got good endurance there. But I ran downhill. There are grandmas on the island of Madeira who I think might make it down some of those hills faster than me. So I think it's it's the specificity component. Like, yes, all training is training, but I think that there is a kind of key little bit of specificity that we need when it comes to really excelling at some of these races. And I definitely went in without that. And that, that's okay. I, ma- I made that choice actively and I'm happy that I did. Yeah, <laughs> that is hilarious. Before I let you go, what else do you have on your schedule this year? What else is on my schedule this year? I am going back to UTMB and I'm going to do 
the craziest week of UTMB possible in which I'm going to do, I'm going to race TDS and I'm going to hopefully show up there like really ready to race. Like I'm, I'm confident that I can do the training now to, to get there. Not only, not only fit, but hopefully race ready. Um, so the, the, I think it's 90 miles at this point with 30,000 feet of climbing. So that'll be all day Tuesday. We start at midnight and then I'm going to sleep Wednesday and then I'm gonna do live commentary Thursday for OCC. And then I'm going to do live commentary Friday for CCC. And then I'm going to do live commentaries Friday and Saturday for UTMB. So it'll be a very busy week. Um, but I'm hoping to merge this commentary and race calendar together. I will be doing commentary again for Broken Arrow and for Western States in June, um, as well as maybe some other UTMB races, one in July and one in September that we're still waiting for confirmation on. Um, so I'm hoping to get a practice race or FKT, like a shorty, um, maybe in my new home or moving to the Cascades or moving back to the Cascades to Seattle area um, in two weeks. So maybe some adventure running in July to get ready for um, ready for the August throwdown. And then hopefully something fun in the fall, like Ultra Trail Cape Town or uh, Transvolcania will be in October this year. So our, the, the, with Adidas Terex, it's really cool because we do have this like team mentality. So we're showing up in force to a couple of races and both of those are on the calendar if we want to go. Um, so trying to be smart, find some fun stuff to do, but yeah, definitely balancing a lot of talking about running and a lot of hopefully running, you know, talking the talk and, and is it, I guess, technically walking the walk, running the run, I guess is what we'll say. I feel like there's a lot of walking in the races <laughs> you choose to do anyway. Um, so, well, I am equally as excited to see you with the bib on again, as well as behind the mic. So I think we'll wrap up our conversation there. Corinne, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for letting me be on this side of the microphone for once. It was super fun. All right, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to thank Corinne for the conversation and thank Justin Bob for producing this episode. From all of us here at Blister, please take good care of yourself and keep moving forward. We'll talk to you again next week.